everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, the podcast where we dissect all different types of activity from cycling and running to NFL and NASCAR. I'm Molly Herford. I write about all things fitness and outdoors related and do most things fitness and outdoors related. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm Molly's co-host here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, and I am a kinesiologist here in Ontario. I help people move all sorts of different ways. Um, usually that's on a bicycle or doing something related to bicycling. Um, but yeah, it could be any sort of different things. Yeah, speaking of being consummate athletes, we had a very consummate athlete heavy weekend. It's the Labor Day weekend as we're recording this, and we've had a pretty... Pretty chill, but pretty intense weekend in a lot of ways. We went hiking one day with a bunch of our good friends and their standard poodle, who was pretty impressive getting up one of the more technical trails at our ski hill in here in Collingwood. Uh, then we went on a walk the next morning. We went to a driving range, so we had to recall some of the tips from Jack Sassville back in one of our earlier episodes to sort of hit the ball across the green. I only missed hitting it like 10 times and only hit it into like a foul ball territory a few times yeah it was good to sort of pull some of that stuff back out and i think i've been once since we recorded that to the driving range but uh it was pretty fun like i'd go again yeah it was pretty inexpensive i mean it's like i don't know how much we spent on balls maybe it's like 10 bucks for a giant bucket for a big basket and that's pretty common i think a lot of places it's around that and like you you look at the basket and you're like oh god this is only gonna take us like five minutes i mean we had five people three baskets and we were there for a solid hour pretty much consistently hitting and a lot of them have chipping ranges or putting greens or something Mm -hmm. you can sort of extend that period of time if you want as well but yeah, it was good. It was a good sort of long weekend. Yeah, where... today was a little bit more normal. Peter rode, I ran, and then we hit the gym for some heavy lifting and tried to tackle some Ryan Atkins-esque training towards the end with some monkey bars. Ryan Atkins, for those of you who don't remember one of our earlier episodes, is one of the OCR world champions. He's crazy at the obstacle racing, so we're sort of trying to take a page out of his book on some stuff. Yeah, it was good. And uh, today's podcast guest was some I actually got to introduce or interview him last week. Uh, and we he was he's sort of Jacques, who you may remember from the Maximum Overload. I feel like every time episode. you forget Jacques' last name, Jacques Devore. I do uh, not forget Jacques' name. I'm just saying you may remember Jacques. We've talked about him every. We had our big giveaway. Someone finally just won true. that book. So congratulations to our, I guess that was our second big contest winner. That was our first contest winner. Our second one was for Stoked Roasters, and that just happened oh, yesterday. Okay. So, so that one just happened. Yay, okay. Colin, by the way. Very yes, exciting. Colin won, and he's from the Western United States. Yes. We don't want to be too specific in case you know Colin. Yeah, you don't want to yeah, get all this coffee drank by... Yeah, intercept the Amazon or yeah. whatever. I guess it wouldn't be Amazon delivering it, but... Anyway, Roy Wallach is this week's guest. He's super rad. He's what we'd call like an adventure journalist. He's written a bunch of books, uh, Cycling for Life and Maximum Overload among them. Um, but he just has so many stories. He kind of was in cycling journalism and sort of the heyday of it. Well, and even adventure, like he did Eco Challenge. He was, we tell us the story of Mark Burnett phoning him up sort of randomly. But we get in, as I, I often like to, sort of how he went from sort of a, I guess, a business sort of clerk job type thing. Mm-hmm. 
um, and how he sort of transitioned into writing and, and found his way in the industry, which I think is interesting if you're you know thinking about changing careers or trying to you know you're a younger person wondering how you can get into doing something you know he sort of maps out how he did it and you know it might not work exactly as a map for you but it's always interesting and inspiring sort of seeing how people get to places absolutely i mean i'll say having gone similar trajectory to him but maybe 20 years after him it's the landscape has changed and it's changed even since i got into journalism so you know those of you looking for tips you can definitely you know listen to a lot of his stuff and i think his main tip is just you know start writing about stuff if that's what you're trying to do i think it's that and show up yeah and i mean we talk about that you might be bitter why am i better i think it's they're good tips they're great his tip was do the work show up I feel like that's suggesting that I have not done the work or showed up. No, just I, I think all I, I think sometimes people think that like the old way isn't good anymore, and we need a new way. No, I don't think I that. Think hard just... work, putting yourself out there, showing up for work. Sure, but the internet wasn't really a thing, and like internet journalism wasn't really a thing when Roy got his start, and sure. race stuff wasn't as easy. Races didn't have social media handles or you know massive Instagrams and stuff. They had to rely on journalists going to their events, and anymore that's not really the case. Right. So it's certainly harder to just get like an invite to all of these massive events as a journalist. I'll I'll say that much, but definitely worth a listen if that's you know at all a career path you want to go down for sure and you guys talked about maximum overload and strength training and longevity tips for cycling as well yeah i think you know he's got such a wide berth of knowledge that you know we get into longevity and sort of coming to terms you know I was proud of myself. I, I sort of came around and we talked all about these long events like LaRuda. I have a couple of clients doing LaRuda, so I picked his brain on this three-day super muddy uh, stage race for mountain biking. And then, you know, we talked about running marathons and our Ironman stuff, but then I circled around at the end and we talk about, you know, how do we come to terms with longevity versus this, like, super long endurance, high performance stuff. And Which so is certainly something you've been grappling with, I'd say, in the last year or two. Honestly, I, th- I would say since I did Leadville in 2011, I've been sort of, you know, grappling with that. And that's why I haven't really gone back and have been very selective about dumb stuff that you do. Uh, again, I don't know if I would say dumb, but it's you know selective in how often i'm training like that and Mm -hmm. looking at things like you know we talked about uh polarized training and stuff with steven seiler um you know strength training with a variety of stuff right and there's all these other methods here and you know that's that's always been my methodology is that there's a way to get there without Mm -hmm. sort of that very chronic endurance loading and middle ground training and stuff so i think it's it's going to be an awesome episode i think you guys are going to really enjoy this this was again one that we sort of got as a bonus because our initial interview got got sort of ruined there so we split the two of them up and we got two episodes uh for for the cost of three i guess Which i think worked out actually better like i mean i, think I loved so. talking to them both at once but i think we definitely get to hit a bunch more topics that are each of them are more passionate about versus some more generic stuff that they're both interested in well we're dividing them into one hour each whereas like roy and i chatted for a solid hour mm-hmm. um you know and it was i think it's all gold all right well there you have it solid gold i might be biased I don't know. I think you're right. I was on the call and it was pretty solid. 
Well, that's that. So anyhow, enjoy. Uh, thanks everyone for your uh, ratings and reviews and downloads and sharing with your friends the podcast. There's been lots of great feedback. Keep emailing us ideas for guests and you know any feedback you have about things you like or don't like or whatever. We're we're here to here to please. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Molly and I are here today with Roy Wallach, who's a writer with the LA Times. And he is here today to tell us a bit about uh, a book that he co-authored with Jacques, who we were actually just talking to last week, I believe. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago now in, in podcast times. Um, and, and that's the Maximum Sustain... Maximum, maximum sus- Overload. Maximum Overload. Uh, maximum Sustained Power is our, our term from that. You're fired. We're, we're all building the Maximum Sustained Power. But anyhow, we're, we have... Roy here today, and he's going to tell us a bit about sort of writing that book, um, and then also a lot about his adventures. As we've gotten to know Roy, we've had a couple misses on our, our podcast recordings that we talked about uh, with the Jacques podcast, uh, but we have the the opportunity now to talk to Roy again and learn more about he's done La Ruta and a bunch of crazy stage races and big running races, so we're excited to sort of pull out some of his experiences as well as just sort of talk a bit more about this awesome book that, that we're really enjoying, so... With all that said, Roy, welcome back, and thank you for making another hour for us. Hey, man, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Awesome. So, why don't you give us just sort of a rundown? You know, what do you when people ask sort of what you're doing? You're in an elevator, stranded with someone. What do you you know? Who is Roy Walk? What do you what are you up to? Well, I start off with the basics. You know, they say, "What do you do?" And I say, "Well, I write about health and fitness. I do a lot of cycling and running and." how to stay in shape until you're 100 years old or beyond, which is kind of the ultimate goal that drives me. And in the course of starting this career, I got into it late. I was 30 years old. I made a career change from just the regular business world. But I was always into cycling and riding my bike uh, as far as I could. And my brother and I ended up riding from Seattle to Maine to Key West, Florida once, and we rode down from Alaska, Alaska to San Diego, and I did a trip from London to Moscow in the 80s, and so I was always into this, seeing the world, using my fitness to help me see the world. It seemed like the most interesting, fascinating way to combine love of staying fit and travel, which are my two big things. So when I became a journalist, writing about this stuff, it was an amazing uh, revelation that people would invite me to events, to cover events. You know how you, there's some big event going on, they want coverage. You know, they want you to cover the the ride up the volcano on Haleakala in Maui, or they want you to cover an ultra race. And I started, I, I immediately said, well, I don't just want to cover it. I want to do it. That's the best way I can cover it. Okay? Yeah. So that's how it led to doing all these crazy things. You know, um, you know, like my very first job, I got a call one day, yeah, do you want to cover this thing where you, you climb from sea level to 10,000 feet in Hawaii? We'll send you a plane ticket and you come cover it. So then I, I did it. Uh, do you want to come cover a 100-mile stage race in the Himalayas where you climb... 14,000 feet, and you have one day of do a marathon with you spend 6,000 feet. I said, yeah, I'll come and do it. 
And do you want to do the Eco Challenge? I got a call from Mark Burnett, you know, the famous reality TV guy. Mm -hmm. You know him? Yeah, for sure. Mark, he's, he's responsible a, he's done for all basically. Sorts of stuff. Yeah, well, he started um, with the Eco Challenge. He, he had done an event called the Raid Galois, uh, put on by a Frenchman, and he copied it and turned it into the Eco Challenge. And I was working at Triathlete Magazine as one of the editors, and I got a call one day from a guy with an English accent. He said, would you like to do the hardest thing you've ever done? <laughs> and I said, in a second, where do I go? Yes, <laughs> and I, I, met, I met him and a bunch of other people in Hollywood at a big uh, high-rise, and, and two weeks later, we were in Utah doing the Eco Challenge. So oh, wow. um, I collected all these crazy events and because of my job, I've, I've been invited to do them, that, you know. So it really hasn't been a financial burden at all for me to do these things. All it really took was for me to be in shape. And so that's what I've done. That's how I kind of govern the way I run my life. I just stay in shape, in shape enough to do any crazy thing that might come along. So, you know, so and Roy, what I'm wondering is, you know, everyone's like, oh, okay, well, this sounds pretty awesome that, you know, you've, you've gotten to do all these things and gotten to travel. And, you know, how did you transition from, you know, what you described as sort of just a normal business world job to, to writing for this? You know, you must have obviously had some writing skill and, and experience. Like, how did, how did you get that first job? Was it with Triathlon Magazine? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'll try to keep this to two minutes. All right? Well, I'll but try and cut you off, I, but I, I'm okay. always curious well, about the job path, right? Like, how do we do that? You know, it sounds awesome to be a professional athlete, a professional writer, but it's not so easy as just, you know, Mark Burnett phones you one day and right, says, Roy, right. come um, on down. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was a kid, you know, one of my teachers in third grade said, you're going to be a writer because I would always take the spelling word stories we had to do and turn in these elaborate stories. And when I was in high school, I was on the school paper, and I actually won a big award for one of my feature stories. And when I got to college, I was an editor on the school paper. But as I went through school, I thought, well, you can't really make a living doing it. I didn't, for some reason, I didn't think I could make a living doing it, so I went on a conventional career path and got an MBA at UCLA and started working in the business world. And as I was working in the business world, I... I found it not very satisfying. Like there was no, the biggest thrill I had one time was doing the company newsletter. And I thought, this is what I really love doing. I really love writing. And before I actually started my job, my brother and I um, took this bike ride across America, this 5,500 mile ride from Seattle, Maine to the Key West. And when I came back and started working, I, I wrote a story about it, and I sent it into Bicycling Magazine. And lo and behold, they published it. So I started thinking, you know what? Um, as my dissatisfaction with my work sort of grew, I thought, well, I have proof that I can do this for a living. You know, I've got, I'm a published writer. And when I started taking a few classes on the side, my teacher's, were amazed, like, this guy's actually published a story, you know, his first time. So I had some confidence that I could pull it off. And then the big moment, you know, it takes a lot 
a, a lot of uh, guts or some life-changing thing to make you change a career, you know. And um, what happened was my brother and I did a... I was trying to sneak bike trips in wherever I could. I became kind of obsessed with seeing the world by bike. So every vacation, every every job change, whatever, I would just end up taking a big bike trip, usually with my brother. And one of those trips was a week-long trip in Alaska. And my brother and I did a big loop around all the... There's not too many roads in Alaska. And we went... We basically covered all the roads in a week. Went from Anchorage and loop up to Fairbanks and then out to Valdez and back to Anchorage. And it was a crazy trip, you know. And I got back to work. And my brother stayed up there and worked in a cannery for the summer. And then about October 1st, he called me up one day and he said, I'm coming home. And I'm riding my bike all the way. And you're (laughs) coming with me. (laughs) And there it was. I had this pretty good job. And I was already, you know, 28, 29 years old. And I just said, okay. Right like that, like. I, I I just thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, and then one second later said, okay. And a week later, I went up there. But when I went up there, I couldn't, I had to make up a big lie to my boss that I had a family crisis. Because I knew he wouldn't go for me taking a three-week leave of absence to take a bike trip. You know, that wasn't accepted in those days, that you do something like that. And... When I got back, and the trip was truly crazy. I, you guys are Canadian, right? So I don't know if you've been in the Yukon and the upper British Columbia and all that. It's it's very desolate. There's nothing up there but, but bears and wild dogs. And, <laughs> and it was freezing. We'd wake up every morning, and our, our water bottles would be frozen, you know, because it was, it was getting into late October. And when I got back from this crazy trip, even today, I've done a lot of crazy things. I think that's the craziest. Um, my boss pigeonholed me, and he said, okay, look, um, I hope, you're, hope it worked out for you, but why didn't you call me? You know, I told you to call me so I could let you know whether I had fired you or not. <laughs> and then I, then I told him, I go, look, um, the reason I didn't call you, I didn't tell him I took the bike trip, you know. I told him, Hey, look, I didn't call you because you um, didn't help me. I told you I had a family crisis, and instead of helping me get through it, you threatened me. You threatened to fire me. So I told him I deliberately didn't call you. And, And we just sat there for 15 minutes staring at each other. And then uh, a couple weeks later, he fired me. <laughs> so... um. I thought, now I need to change my career. Now this is the motivation I need to change my career. And within a year, I was editing a magazine. I had a book deal, and I did a bike trip into Russia, and everything turned out great. I almost couldn't believe it. Wow. But I just I just needed a, a... You know how you get comfortable with your job, right? You get the X amount of money coming in, and... You know, even if your job's not that great, you guys have a great job. You're doing exactly what you, you like. Um, but you you just get satisfied with what you're doing. And sometimes, I mean, that was my big kick. You know, I knew then I had to get moving. And everything happened so quickly, it, my head almost spun. But 
So I, I was able to leverage that article that I had in Bicycling Magazine, and I got a, I took a little internship job at a bike, a local bike magazine, and I got a bunch of bylines, and I shopped them around, and I had a couple magazines that were interested in me right away. And you took so, Roy, just to clarify, you did take. You said you were taking like writing lessons after you had that first article published. Well, yeah. What happened was I, I got that article published, and then I thought you know what, this is a sign. This is a sign that I'm really good at this. And I need to start planning for there being a career change. Yeah, and I think so that's, that's I, like, I think that's my favorite takeaway of that whole story. You know, that was a good adventure. But I think the fact that you, you know, put yourself out there with your story and, you know, initially, they could have told you you were a horrible writer, but you put it out there and see what happened and it worked out. But then you also were like, huh, I need to go get some more training and, and just learn a bit more about this so that when there is yeah, an opportunity, because, right? Yeah, right. I mean, because I didn't, even though I'd done all this writing and I was editor at the college paper and I, you know, all that, blah, blah, I hadn't, we, I didn't have a journalism major. There was no journalism major at my college, you know? And I thought, I, and besides, there was another motivation, you know, the longer you took classes, the longer you could defray paying your student loans. Right. So I would take a lot of classes, and I thought, I need to get educated as to what a real journalist does. You know, learn some real skills. And, and I actually learned some real skills from that, you know, um, you know about that. how to edit, how to, be, how to be concise, how to get to the point better. And, you know, I already had a good, good instinct, but there's nothing like really learning from pros. And the guy who, um, the first teacher... It was a, a school called Cal State Fortune down here. He was an editor at the Orange County Register. I'm a, a sports editor, and he he really like, he gave us a lot of good tips, and I just ate it up. I was hungry, you know. I I, I knew that eventually I'd have to change my career to. I didn't want to go through life being unhappy with this boring corporate existence I was living. You know. Awesome. So. I think that's awesome. I didn't expect that as a takeaway, but I, I really like hearing, that's why I say there's always like something in that history of like, how did someone get there? You know, that, that I think we can use to remind ourselves that, you know, it's not just like one day Mark Burdett phoned you and you're going to the eco challenge, right? Like there's some hard work yeah, and some, right. I think putting yourself out there is a, a good thing too. Um, so I was hoping now we could just talk briefly, you know, we've, we've gotten a lot of the science and the practical side from Jacques on the, on the book, your latest book. But I wonder if you give us, I'm, I'm trying to recall back to our conversation, and you sort of gave a good story around, you know, you, you had written several books before, and, and certainly one on, on sort of longevity in cycling, and how that didn't quite catch with people. But then this book you, right. th you thought was better. So just maybe give us that that. Well, that what window. happened was, when I, when I hit 40, and, you know, I just continued doing these these extreme events and it was so much fun and and uh, I just love the people who do this all you know you you find you, you you with a group of people that think like you do they want to see the world they want to challenge themselves it's, it's really invigorating you know regular folk don't get it to a certain extent you know and and I thought I just want to keep doing this I want to keep doing this when I'm 70 when I'm 80 I, I don't want to. I don't want there to be a limitation. You know what I mean. I don't want to retire. So I got a book deal. 
um, about the time that I was in my late 40s, and that for to write a bike book, and I came up with the title "Bike for Life," and then the subhead was "How to Ride to 100," because that was ultimately my goal, my personal goal, right? Because I'm a baby boomer, and right in the middle of the baby boom generation, I thought there are millions of people like me. I'm not alone. I'm not a freak. You know, there's going to be a big market for this, and my and my publisher agreed. And it turned out that book was considered a bestseller. It sold 50,000 copies since 2005. So it, it was very steady just up until the last couple of years. So then I wrote, in, then piggybacking on that, I wrote another book called Run for Life, How to Run to Life. You know, because I'm just continuing the theme. And all the stuff that I learned uh, from the bike you know, all my my research for the bike book, I, I pumped into the running book and then added more running-specific things. And one of the big things that uh, is a thread through both those books and some of the other stuff I've written since about general fitness um, is, is strength training. Because after, when you hit about 35, you're, you begin, uh, your muscles begin to deteriorate. I mean, everything in your body is deteriorating after 35, but... You, they've done all these studies and found that like you lose one percent of muscle mass a year on the average at thirty-five, and it it begins to accelerate, you know, after fifty. So that became a key thing. I didn't really lift a lot of weights. I already was a fairly muscular guy. I was a pretty good wrestler when I was in high school and college. I won a lot of I, I won a lot of tournaments. I didn't really need to lift weights because I thought weightlifting was a little bit of a vanity thing. You know, people pumping up to look good in the gym. And, you know, I already had the muscles, so I didn't have to do that. But then I start reading about how, well, I'm actually deteriorating and and, and uh, I, need, I need to keep lifting weights to keep my athletic bona fides up, to be able to do this stuff. So weight training became a really big deal. And... I wrote an article for Bicycling Magazine in 2004 that to this day I think is my most important story, and that is if you ride a bike exclusively as your sport and do nothing else, there's a, you get a high, there's a high propensity of bone loss. Osteoporosis is occurring to hardcore riders because there's no bone is a living tissue that reacts to stress, you know, to gravity, weight-bearing, and vibration. And there's very little of that in cycling because you're sitting on a bike seat. I don't know if you've ever heard about this. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's definitely important for sure. So I ran into, because I was networked in with the Ram riders and the endurance riders, and I, myself, I'd done stuff like Paris, Press Paris. You know, I, I'd been very involved in the endurance scene myself. You know, when I actually found out about it from some, some guys, some Ram riders, you know, who had done who were part of this study that was done by a professor at San Diego State, where she she took she was a rider herself, and she took bone scans of these bike racers, all of whom rode like an average of 12 hours a week. And there was a huge incidence of bone loss. Yeah, like their, their hips were like 90-year-old hips or something like that. It was oh, some, yeah, yeah, it was horrible. 70-year-old like, hips, maybe. Yeah, like three-quarters of them had osteopenia, which is the the first stage of osteoporosis, and then five of them had full-blown osteoporosis. And the average age of these guys is in their late 40s. Yeah. 
an age when men shouldn't have any bone loss, you know? Right. So that became a big article in Bicycling Magazine, and I thought, okay, you know, I felt really good. Like, I'm really doing good as a journalist here, publicizing this thing, and this is going to change things. Cyclists, I'm going to see cyclists in the weight room working out, you know, because weightlifting was a really important uh, method to stop this bone loss, you know, because of all the stress weightlifting puts on your skeleton. But nothing happened. Zero. <laughs> no, 13 years later. Nobody lifted yeah. weights. Cyclists like to ride the bike. They don't want to get in the weight room. <laughs> you know, the idea of going in the weight room is crazy. You know, they might in the wintertime go to a spin class. That's it, right? Yeah. And so so I was screaming into a void. Nobody was listening to me. And I thought the only thing cyclists care about is going fast. That's it. And I, you know, I saw other books come out. Like there's a, some pretty good books on CrossFit and weight, tra- uh, CrossFit and running, right? There's one by Brian McKenzie that's written a yeah, really the good book. CrossFit Endurance book. I'm trying to, like, Power Speed Endurance, I think is what it's called. And it, it's a good yeah, book, can... but, yeah, I don't know if the cycling, like, transfer is, is quite Right, as good, I think know? that, and then I did some stories for a, a triathlon. You know, I got, I did a lot of CrossFit. In fact, I worked for CrossFit for a while. I did one of the first big articles on it in, like, 2006. And then they, I worked for their website for a while. I wrote a bunch of articles. And I got into CrossFit myself, and then I did some articles about CrossFit and triathlon, and I interviewed some coaches and some athletes who were seeing a lot of success with it. I got some, and so I wrote some, a few stories about it. But the bottom line was that the hardcore people who were already triathletes weren't going to do it because they already had their routine; they didn't have time to do weights, and even though. Dave Scott, you know the famous triathlete Dave Scott? Oh, yeah, we love Dave Scott. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever talked to him. Dave is a huge weightlifter. You know, he, he talked about weights in his book, and I interviewed him many times. And But nobody, even, even with Dave, nobody really lifted weights, you know. And then when I ran into Jacques, and I saw Jacques as kind of a Trojan horse that could bring the weightlifting message to cyclists. You know, because he, through sheer luck, he had run into this guy, Dave Zabriskie, who was a name writer. You know, that's one important thing I've learned over the years is that when you write a story, if you have a name, a big name has done the program, people pay attention, right? They don't pay attention to the average guy, you know, who's reduced his uh, Ironman time two hours doing CrossFit. They'd pay attention to some big name did it. Yeah, and I think that definitely, talking about that other book you mentioned, like, that's the criticism of the CrossFit endurance is always like, okay, show us someone who's in, like, the top 10% of, you know, any endurance sport who's doing this. And uh, to my, you know, there's probably some exceptions. And, you know, I I like the book. I bought it. So no one give us email. But that's what they're missing, right? Yeah, yeah. It was too anecdotal with no-name people, right? And... Yeah, it all makes sense, CrossFit, and you, and you, and or you could see it. It made you better, you know. But 
But like I was talking with a guy named um, Ian Murray, who's a big time triathlon coach in LA. You guys may know of him. Have you heard of Ian? I haven't heard of Ian. No. Um, he's very big. He's with USA Triathlon. He's a, the coach of the LA Tri Club, and I've used him as one of my sources for many years. And he told me, and cause I and then I I interviewed him quite a bit. And I, when I was talk, I called him when I was doing the CrossFit stories, and he said. No big-time triathlete will ever try this because these triathletes and cyclists and runners are as frail as glass. They try something new like CrossFit, they're going to get broken very quickly. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a really insightful comment, you know, because they haven't done any weightlifting at all. So, you know, when you first try something new, it hurts. Sometimes you get injured. You know, and so I've been lifting weights little by little over the years. And, you know, so for when I jumped into CrossFit, even, wow, it really knocked me, knocked me out right away. What if I was a, just a diehard cyclist and never did it? You know, so, so it takes a big name to kind of bring the attention to it. So even though, and I'm going to admit something to you right now, Dave Zabriskie, as a journalist, didn't pass the test of, proving that weightlifting worked for me. Um, yeah, anecdotally, Jacques told me he kicked butt. But I didn't see the results. Right. Okay? Um, yeah, Jacques told me that Dave Zabriskie's uh, deadlift went up by a huge amount. His power went up by a huge amount. But when I went to see Dave Zabriskie, one day I met Jacques in Palm Springs, at this big hill climb in the Tour of California, mm -hmm. Zabriskie finished in the middle of the pack and he was totally wasted. Just on the kind of terrain that he should have kicked butt on, which was a giant hill climb that that, that, that day's stage ended at. So I, I still didn't see any results. Um, but, but when I, after I met Jacques, and then I went on my own and just replicated uh, some of the exercises I learned from him in my in in my gym, and then I did some bike rides, and I did the time trial at the Beverly Hills Grand Fondo, and I I I was way up in the front path, which I never am when I do hill climbs, you know. So I thought, well, anecdotally, this seems to be working for me. I'm going in the gym and I'm blasting my butt with exercises I really haven't done before, you know, even though I've been going to the gym for a while. Um, so, on that basis, very thin basis, I pitched the book to Rodale. and But I made it clear up front that I didn't have any any hard proof that worked for Zabriskie. I was just going to go on the fact that I had a big-name writer who did it. You know what I mean? For sure. Like, and, uh, I mean... To me, the bigger thing is if you could get you know, enough people like yourself, right? Because that's what my interest is, is, you know, can I get clients who are time crunched, especially, you know, and getting older, you know, I don't care about pro tour riders. Um, so that's why I was interested in the book. Yeah, see, the older guys, over 50, because I don't, I think when you're in your 40s, you still think you're young and a super stud, you know, I can ride a bike fast. But when you hit 50, you start to notice you don't look as good. You know, you look a little shriveled or, and you're not, and you're falling behind, you know. Then the older crowd will start lifting weights. 
I think that's why my book, Bike for Life, sold, you know, because it appealed to that the baby boomer crowd who who wanted to stay, stay young, right? right. Um, health IQ is a life insurance company that promotes a health-conscious lifestyle through financial rewards. They've used science and data to get lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people just like you including those who exercise four times a week through cycling, weightlifting, swimming, running, whatever consummate athlete lifestyle you're, you're undertaking. Research has shown that people who are highly active through exercise have a 22% lower cancer risk, 50% lower heart risk, and 34% lower risk of early death. Many people who exercise regularly don't realize that they can get a special rate with Health IQ if they qualify through the Health IQ quiz. Health IQ has special rates for cyclists, runners, triathletes, vegans, and other health-conscious people, so you can qualify by scoring elite on quizzes for specific lifestyles. Essentially replacing BMI with waist-to-hip ratio for better predictors of cardiovascular disease when it comes to weightlifters and muscular builds. That's great for me. They also have replaced the LDL-HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for low-carb and paleo dieters, which is a better predictor of cholesterol health, and they don't take into account one incidence of family history if you're otherwise healthy. So, go over to healthiq.com slash CAPod. All lowercase. And take that quiz. Um, they have a bunch of different quizzes on the website, and the website's pretty well designed, so it's worth heading over there, checking it out, and again, using that link, healthiq.com slash C-A-P-O-D. You, you did find more people. You found a couple examples of sort of elite-level performances in different disciplines, and and so what, what convinced you then, you know, was it more experimentation on yourself or, or what else did you gather as far as things that convinced you that this, this program was worth it for, for cyclists? Well, I, I just believe in general that weightlifting is good for everybody. So I'm starting from that standpoint, like I, to be kind of an evangelist just for weightlifting. Okay. Like I believe everybody should do it. Women, men, everybody. It's just good for you. I don't even, I don't, I'm not talking about the looks. I'm just talking about function. That's all I care about. So then using, you know, going back to the Trojan horse analogy, I thought now I've got this big name guy, Zabriskie, who's got me in the door. I got Rodale to agree to publish the book, and Zabriskie's going to get attention. But I can't use him for too long because he doesn't really have any results, and he retired after that year. So I called my go-to superstar big name cyclist is John Howard. You know, and John Howard is a three-time Olympian, US Cycling Hall of Famer. I consider John a friend. He's the first guy I interviewed as a professional journalist 30 years ago. And he's very humble because he didn't get into the big money era of cycling. You know, so he's had to work for a living and he's he's a guy who will try anything. That's what I really admired about Howard. And Howard is still a maniac on the bike. He can beat, you know, a couple of years ago, he won the Tour of Tucson. Tour of Tucson at, at six. And a great coach and well-known in the bike world. And I, So I called John up and I said, hey, John, I know you. I know you'll try anything to get better. I've got something for you I don't think you've tried yet. And then I told him about Zabriskie. 
See, again, I'm just using the Zabriskie name to hook people, right? Mm-hmm. And then I gave him Jock, Jock's phone number. And I said, I said, John, call this guy and let's, let's meet at his gym and let's, get, let's take you to a new level. Here I am talking to John Howard, superstar, and I'm telling him I'm going to help take him to a new level. It's hilarious. <laughs> right? But I know Howard, and I know, you know, he'll try anything. And because he wants to, he's like me. He wants to be doing this when he's 100. So Howard shows up. At, Howard has a conversation with Jacques. And I, then he called me back. He goes, okay, I like what I heard. I'm going to go to the gym. I'll meet you guys down there Sunday morning. You know, so we meet uh, on a Sunday at 7 in the morning. And, and Howard drives up from San Diego to L.A. And then he brings with him a woman, this very bubbly, robust, athletic-looking woman named Denise Mueller. And Howard tells me, I'm training her to break my land speed record of 152.2 miles per hour at Bonneville. I don't know if you know about John. Um, among all the other things he's done in his storied career, he won the Ironman. He, he then set a, a speed record at Bonneville, 152.2 in IT. Did, are you aware of that? I think I did know that because I knew about Denise. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he brings Denise in and and Denise is, like I say, she's robust. She's got muscle. And she's we're get, we're putting her through the, the workout, and she is lifting heavy weight and doing everything. And Jacques and I look at each other, and we go, wow, this is our guinea pig. It's not Howard. <laughs> although, Howard although Howard was very valuable as an example of what happens when all you do is ride a bike, because Howard was quite carphotic, you know, bent over in that cycling C shape. You know, he had very little uh, flexibility. You know, we had to do a lot of work just to straighten Howard's body out. And, and those know? exercises and also, are in the book, too. It's actually a really good part yeah, of the book yeah. as it's laid out very be- simply. Because of Howard, we ended up doing a whole, I ended up writing a whole new chapter on how to straighten your body out. Right. That wasn't in the original design, but because we saw what kind of shape Howard was in. And you might have noticed in the book, there's a before and after of Howard. You know, he's standing there, and he's kind of bent over, and then 20 minutes later, after some of the warm-up exercises, he's like two inches taller and looks like he's a stud who can kick your butt, <laughs> you know? So it was, a, it was very valuable to have John and Denise in there because we had two very different examples of, the benefit of doing these workouts, you know. So John didn't even belong to a gym. So when he would go home, you know, he didn't really do anything. But Denise went to a gym and she did this stuff religiously and all her numbers started going up. Her power on the bike started going up. And then she won two big races down in San Diego against women who were 15 years younger. So she was already 43. So she's winning against cat won races in their 20s, you know, and and Howard would call me up to go, Roy, her power is through the roof. She's hanging with, she's not only hanging with the group rides, she's leading the group rides. She never did. So Howard was get, giving me all validation that the training was working. 
Denise became the big proof that it worked. You know, Zabriskie was just opening the door. That's all Zabriskie was. It's Denise, for me as a journalist, who was proof this thing worked. And the fact that and it then, wasn't just the land speed record, I mean, that's impressive, but it is a pretty niche thing. But the fact that, you know, she was an accomplished bike rider and was, was you know, doing well or better in, in her, in her, you know, yeah, she, other she won these two. She won these two actually fairly well-known races in San Diego, which, right. which get a lot of competition. So that was a real eye-opener. People were talking about it, like, what? This woman hasn't been racing for years, and even though she was a junior champion, that was 25 years ago. Yeah, you know, because that was her story. So, it, I w- I was very relieved that it worked, that I that I didn't have to just do the, you know, what you mentioned, what happened with Brian McKenzie with his book, just low level anecdotal stuff. That I had a real person to hang it on. Yeah, and I think, you know, we talked, you know, the performance is definitely part of it, but, you know, I think Jacques termed it as sort of like indirect or, or direct, and, you know, the cyclists always want to know, like, it, are, is my, you know, CP20 or is my time trial power going up? But, you know, there's the indirect, you know, back pain, there's indirect, you know, arm pump in mountain biking, there's, um, you know, all sorts of different stuff, just even the mobility and, and whatnot, how quick you recover, you know, because your body's be- built or beat up, which you start realizing even in your 30s is, you know, it, it starts taking longer to recover, you know, so yeah. to me, the strength training is next level, we just did an Ironman, and since we've talked, like we did this Ironman and sort of had our last month or so of training, and so I was doing the program leading into that Ironman, and I think it definitely helped. Like certainly it even helped on the run. I know this is very much targeted at cyclists, but that idea of sort of, you know, getting into the lunges and just, you know, the, the stuff's all very accessible, but I, I definitely think it helped with recovery and just sort of being able to take that pounding and recover a little quicker. That's great. You know, there's one thing I want to mention before I forget. When um, I did an update to my book, Bike for Life, that just came out a couple of years ago. And, so I'd learned a lot in the 10 years since the first issue came out. And I was at a Cannondale training camp in uh, the hills around L.A., the Santa Monica Mountains, and they had the Cannondale team in, and they had you know, a lot of big names on that team. And one of them, one of the, one of the domestiques on the team is a guy named Cameron Wirth, uh, an Australian who had been on the Aussie... Uh, 2004 Olympic rowing team. And I was, I interviewed him there and um, he told me he was doing a ton of strength training. And I said, really? Because cyclists don't do it. He goes, yeah, but rowers do strength training like crazy. And when I switched, because he was the only guy, the only guy ever to switch sports, to, to be a rower and then at, at the Olympic level and then make it to the pro cycling level. So he told me he missed weight training. When he became a cyclist, he felt that he was getting a little stale, as he put it. So he showed me a bunch of weight exercises that he was doing, and then he, he introduced me to the trainer of the Cannondale team, who told me that he was taking a lot of works, uh, you know, exercises and point of view on this, and, and doing it for the whole team. They were particularly doing exercises that work the the glutes because the glutes are a little underused in cycling 
And sometimes people don't use them at all because it's so co-op-centric. But the glutes are really important to sharing the load with the quads and in keeping the leg in a straight, forward, piston-like pumping motion. So this guy, the trainer, was taking Worf's input and translating to the whole team, and he told me he was getting really good results with it. So I thought, little by little, their weight training is sort of going to worm its way into the peloton as more and more trainers learn about it. But it's just like Jacques said, the average cycling coach knows only cycling and doesn't know anything about weight training. Right. You know, so it's going to be a long process. So that brings me back to Zabriskie. So when I got that big name, I thought I better run with it. You know, because I already yeah. had some proof that it was working for a big-time Tour de France team. Right. You know? That makes sense. So I'm wondering, you know, that's – we. we... We've gotten the book. Um, you know, what I'm wondering, too, is if we could step a little selfishly. I want to step back and, and talk a bit about you did La Ruta. You say you've done it seven times. And so I have a few clients that are actually gearing up for this year's. And so I was hoping, you know, you could talk about your preparation for that because, you know, I'm always interested in that that normal person, you know, with a, a job, you know, who has to get ready for these big, you know, La Ruta's eight hours, if you're lucky, probably stages. Um, yeah, you know, so, so what did you learn? You, you didn't actually complete it the first time. So you, you must've learned something for the second to seventh times. Yeah. Well, what happened was, um, my friend Bill Katowski, who was the founder of triathlete magazine, um, met Roman Urbina, who's the founder of La Ruta at Interbike one year. And then Bill called me up and said, Hey, get ready. We're going to Costa Rica next week. <laughs> I said, what are we doing? Because it's crazy race. So I went in totally unprepared, but I'd done, you know, a lot of endurance cycling, Paris versus Paris, and, uh, you know, I, I can do I could do, do, do double century right now, no problem. Um, and so I went down there, and it was the first day in La Ruta's 12, well, it's, for me, it took 12 hours. And when I got done, it was the, maybe the hardest day I'd ever had in my life, but I made the cutoff. And everything was fine, but but I didn't. What I didn't know was how to treat myself after the event was over. I didn't pump a bunch of food in. I didn't get a massage. I didn't take care of myself after the event. You know, like my body was okay with doing some crazy hard all day twelve hour thing, right? Because I'd done a lot of those things before, but I didn't. I didn't probably hydrate enough on the bike. I didn't eat enough on the bike. I didn't eat enough afterwards. I didn't get enough rest. And when I woke up in the morning, I was all, I, I, I spasmed. Like I got out of bed and fell over. I literally fell over. Like I fell on the floor and I got freaked out, you know, like, Oh my God, but this has never happened to me before. I, I, I certainly cannot do today's event. And I just didn't do it. That's what happened. That, that's really the reason why I didn't finish it, because I I got I got intimidated. Well, and you, you tested know? every I, worst pre- preparation possible and and every worst practice as far as not fueling and stuff too. So, so that's yeah. <laughs> so then and, you but, went back the very I, next year. Yeah, yeah, Roman. You know, Roman um, liked the coverage I gave him. I wrote articles wherever I could, and you know, this is I this 
kind of thing is what I live for. I love doing crazy things, right? So I wanted to tell everybody about it. You know, I put it in Triathlete Magazine, and I put it in every other magazine I, that I had any association with. So Ramon was very happy to keep bringing me back there. <laughs> I gotcha. could write more articles about it, right? So, so what was and, the learning? Uh, like, can you give uh, if someone? And it doesn't even have to be the second time. Like, I think it's obvious you probably knew you were coming the second time and what you were up against. So, you know, that would be helpful. But you know, well, as, as Laruda as an event, get... like, what what are the what are the keys to Laruda okay. as an event? Well, train. It's really key to do two hard back. You got to be out there for uh, seven hours. Because you got to get your body, you got to let your body know what it's like to do this crazy thing day after day. You know, because anybody can kind of tough it out one day, right? But it's being, you know, preparing and having your body ready to handle it the next day. And so much of it is, is titration and food. You've got to be an eating machine. You got to keep pumping the stuff down, and you got to have a lot of protein. Like you got all these guys out there eating gel packs and energy bars; it's all sugar. But your muscles are getting beat up doing these long rides. And and I found that, you know, I like sardines, and sardines are a very convenient way for me to pump some protein in there. I also, from the Eco Challenge, having done that a few years earlier, what we learned from doing stuff almost around the clock for eight days was we needed, we needed protein. And so I went down to Costco and I bought $300 worth of beef jerky, you know, and passed it out to all our team members during the eco challenge. So I used some of what I learned from the eco challenge for La Ruta, And that was protein, a lot of protein, a lot of food. And when you get to the rest stops, you just power down whatever drink they have there. You just, got to hydrate you just you got to make eating and, and nutrition a key you know because it's just like you're a car you're you're running out of gas well especially for the you're, longer you're gonna, like when you're up in those eight to 12 hour days like you can certainly handle a lot more as far as as solids and protein and stuff as well yeah and and at my level you know i'm i'm if i try hard i'm a mid-packer okay you know, and I'm the kind of guy I like to, I like to, you know, stop and take a lot of pictures and do all that, right? So I'm going to be out there a long time, and I don't care about going super fast and only eating energy gels. You know, I'm going to, I need real food, so I don't have any trouble digesting real food going at my pace. Right. You know? Is there but, a, is there a type like, of sardine that you eat? Because, I mean, I, I'm okay with sardines and, and like, good sardines I, I can eat, but I don't know if I could ever, and maybe it's the speed aspect. Maybe, like you say, if, if I wasn't trying to race really fast, maybe I'd be more in that mindset. But is there a brand of sardines that you, you would recommend if someone wanted to try that in an 8- to 12-hour? Well, what I would say is this. What I've learned about the whole paleo thing is you need your fats. Fats are really important. And good fats and good oils are really important. So if you can get sardines in olive oil. Yeah, and that's the that's one the I've been getting. I'm trying to remember the name of the brand that we get here. Uh, but it's a, it, Well, I, you guys have Brunswick. Is, you have Brunswick up there for sure. We do have Brunswick. I don't and, find them as easy. Like if I mix those with like a salsa, again, we're talking off the bike here. I'm not making myself a salsa sardines uh, for on the bike. But 
Uh, the Brunswick ones are okay, but I can't do them straight. I do my shopping at Costco, and they have a brand there named called Four Seasons or something. Okay. That is really good. I really love it. You know, but the, here's one thing I love about sardines <laughs> is that most people don't like them, so nobody wants to share with you. <laughs> exactly. And it, and they're actually surprisingly cheap for, like, how nutrient-dense they are. Like, you know, people are always oh, like, oh, yeah, what food okay. should I get? And it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, I just get – we order 24 at a time, and, you know, they're they're pretty and good they, ones. And they, they have a pull top, and the can – is rounded at the corners and sits anywhere in your pack. Yeah. So if you have the smallest little pocket, you know, on your hydration pack or a, a, a bag on your bike, whatever, you can fill it with sardines, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's super random, but yeah, I mean, I definitely have them in all my gear bags and stuff just for, you know, I get stranded at the race site or whatever. And like you say, the, the protein is important at some point there. Yeah. But you know, like a lot of people don't like sardines. So they need to get the protein, man. They need, you know, beef jerky. They, have you whatever tried, have you tried Epic Bars? So it's like a beef jerky, but more in a bar format. It's a little more... You know, I, I haven't had it, but it sounds great. Yeah, look, I, you're in L.A., so you, I, you'll find them for sure. But they make all They're sorts of... epic Epic. Yes, sir. Yeah, and so they have everything from salmon, like all like every type of meat you can name, and different flavors and stuff, and... Yeah, it's I I really like those. So we've been getting those and sardines. We order right to the house. I mean, I think we know now. You know, I think because the uh, the paleo movement has become kind of mainstream in the last couple of years. Every and 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 everybody knows that sugary stuff is not good for you. And as an athlete, yeah, you can save a goo for the end of the ride. It gives you quick energy, right? But if you've been relying on goos and 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 regular granola-type energy bars throughout the race, you, you haven't been getting any long-term energy. You know, that you, you need you need some, a big log on the fire rather than just kindling. Right, yeah, and I, certainly when we're talking about that, you know, certainly if you're stopping to take photos, but certainly once the duration, the time span is getting out, the, you know, hitting all those macronutrients, the protein, fat, and, and certainly going to more solids is very much possible for sure. I made a big mistake. I was at the... Uh, I did the 24 Hours of Adrenaline Solo World Championships up in Canmore. I don't know if you know a Stuart Dorland. I know all of those things. Yeah, we were just in Canmore. Okay, Stuart Dorland, I consider him one of my best friends. and he, I, I went to every 24-hour, uh, uh, every Adrenaline Championship from 1999 on, and I competed twice. Yeah, I'm in Canmore. I'm there. I'm actually doing very well. It looks like I could win my age group, and I, everything's going to plan. I really trained for this, and suddenly, 12:30 at night, I'm on the course, and I just my brain started to shut down. I started to almost hallucinate. It was the weirdest experience, and I I had to lay down and I had to walk, and they actually had people out on the course looking for me, like what the hell happened to him? You know, it took me three hours to get in when a normal lap was taking me. 110 and it's because i just saturated my body with sugar you know and i didn't have a good reaction to it it, it was it was a bad time for me to experiment <laughs> yeah and that's the thing right like i really if you, could keep, you, you probably stopped eating too is, is part of that i would think like you were having gi distress or something like yeah that. Yeah. yeah yeah 
So, Roy, the other area you, you know, you've invested a lot of time in is, and you've talked about these crazy events. And so I'm at a point in my life now, you know, I'm sort of coming towards the end of my super high performance or moderate high performance career and thinking more to longevity. So, you know, I feel good about it. I've, you know, I've always been interested in lots of different sports. Certainly that's what this podcast is about is moving different ways. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you reconcile, you know, things like RAM and 24 hour solo and, and stuff? against this idea of health and longevity um you know do you think there's a place for that or do you think like that's a a young person's game you know like i guess what i'm struggling with is where does where does cycling where does cycling and endurance fit into like a, a longevity plan number one the people who do this stuff on a regular basis are not necessarily doing their body a lot of good you know when you do these long-distance things, they really beat you up. They they destroy a lot of things. There's a huge recovery time. But I think that they, the, they are valuable for motivation. See, I don't do this stuff all the time. This is once or twice a year I do some crazy thing, you know? I'm not on a regular basis subjecting my body to extreme workouts. And... So that's how I've come to regard it, you know, like as a motivating thing. We all need motivation, right? I think that makes sense. Uh, like, so if you're training for an Ironman, which I've just come through, you know, we took a pretty minimal look at that, tried to be building up and numbers improving and, and feeling good, not overrunning. You know, the running was the one I was really concerned with as far as injury. Um, and then getting to the race and yeah, it was a big day. We were tired at the end, but we were both, you know, functional, no injuries, but just looking around the course as you're running it with the number of knee braces and limps and kin tape and, and all this stuff. And it's just like, people are beat up before they even start. Yeah, right. People need to train less and they need to lift weights more. So that's where the weightlifting comes in. Weightlifting keeps you strong weightlifting replaces a lot of that hard long aerobic you know that's why i become more evangelizing more and more about weightlifting you know because it it's what's going to keep you going in the long term it's uh, long you know i've done i love running but and but i run less and less now you know because i had a ton of 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 ankle, knee injuries when I was in my 20s and 30s because I ran so much. And then I started running less. And my times really haven't fallen off that much. I mean, probably after 50, you know, I've gotten slower just from age. But I'm still way up there in my... I'm actually a really good runner. And I'm always in the top 10% of my age group. And my times, uh, my relative times in my age group are as good as ever, or even better. And I run way less. You know, I just think you have to, you, you know, you, you, you can't all of that and hours out there doing this. It's proven it's not good for your bones, for your That's some of weightlifting. It all comes back to weightlifting. It does. Honestly. It I, does. And I, I am a believer for sure. And, so I think that's awesome, Roy. I think you've given us a lot of takeaways. Like I'm glad we got the second chance to talk. 
Um, you know, I think we've put another good punch in here for the, the book. I think everyone should get it. So we'll definitely link to that again and, and make sure everyone's got that. I know a few clients have already, okay. already ordered it. So uh, I'll let you go for the day. Thank you again for your time. I know you're busy. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.